This is the City of Refuge, Thomaston, Georgia, Sunday morning podcast. The following is a live recorded sermon by Pastor Jeff Deal. Assignment, I would call it. And uh, he was, he's um, behind the eight ball, so to speak, because they need to have a curriculum written for most most is men opposing sex trafficking that's the new thing out of city of refuge and it's a um, pretty extensive study and curriculum for men that would go on for a period of probably three months in local churches with men's groups and he hired a guy back in august to write the curriculum and he thought the guy was you know tracking along well with what he was doing but Come to find out the guy had very little done on it and he needs a curriculum in three weeks. So he asked me, what are the chances you can write this curriculum in three weeks? And I said, well, I can write the curriculum in three weeks as long as you don't expect me to do anything else during that three weeks. So I sent a message out to our our staff and said, hey, I'm gonna be working on this. So uh, don't expect much out of me during that time period. Well, the point of of me telling you that is this curriculum is designed to prepare men for what they ought to be doing in the world right now. Uh, So it's a very important thing. And I'm using that as an example because that's what we're doing in here right now. That's what we're doing from the book of Jeremiah. That's what we're doing from the book, Run With the Horses. It's, it's an attempt to prepare people to do something, you know, to um, put on the weapon, the, the armor, and gra- take up the weapons of war and get busy because we just have way too many Christian people who are just not doing anything. You know, they know that evil abounds. They know that it's getting worse. They know that darkness is covering the earth, spiritually speaking. They might go to church. They might say their prayers. They might even pay their tithes. But they really just don't do anything, you know. They don't get up and go to work. You know, somebody asked me about situation recently where somebody you know is whatever and um i said well the problem is they just don't want to do the work (laughs) listen the kingdom of god requires laborers not spectators not observers not applauders workers you know to get out in the field, to get out there where the problems are, to address the issues, to speak against the evil, to defend the weak, the vulnerable, the poor, kids, orphans, widows, addicted people, lonely people, prisoners. That requires work, labor, effort, time, talent, treasure. So, I don't, you know, I think that often we're guilty 
of just seeing going to church and being part of a church as our role as a believer. Well, I'm a Christian, gave my life to the Lord a long time ago. I go to church, I'm part of this church, and I support the church. And, I, but, and that's good. We need to do that. That's important. But man, it just can't stop with, with that. And the reason that we have uh, more and more problems that are be becoming more and more exacerbated as time goes on is because we don't have enough good, solid, godly, kingdom-minded people out there waging war and doing the work. So when we develop this curriculum, when we put in place this program, when we build this new housing complex, when we do all the things that we do in the ministry, all of that is by design, and the design is to address the needs of people and to fight against evil in the world. That's why we're doing it. But we have to be educated, okay? You need to know the Word. That's why everything we talk about in here is based off of the Word. Everything I'm writing for the most curriculum starts with Scripture. It's all based off of the Word. So you have to be educated and you have to be equipped, you have to be weaponized if you plan to go to war, right? So the title of the curriculum is Men at War, right? I've got on a little cheap rubber bracelet here that I got in Ohio when I went to the first most event for men a few weeks ago. I haven't taken it off since that night. And what it says is, welcome to the war. It's a reminder, every time I see it, it's like I'm in a war. I've got to make sure that I am what I need to be to be in this war. And most has a lot of uh, retired military special operators as part of our team. Guys who are 20, 25 years, Army Rangers, Green Berets, Navy SEALs. And so we look at them as an example of what it means to go to war because when we go, when we go to these most retreats out in Kansas, they call it operator for a day. So they gear you up and you go through some training and then you go out on missions. Well, what happens if you go out there and you don't have the right weapons or you don't have any weapons? What happens if you go out there and you're not properly trained and prepared? You know, on our missions, listen, some of our guys shoot other of our guys in the back because they're not, because you can't get trained in one day, right? We went through a little training, but we're killing each other because we're not properly trained and prepared airsoft rifles, rubber bullets, which by the way hurt. I've had some blood leak out on the ground in my experiences out there. But training is ongoing, it's intense, it's sequential, and 
you build, that means you build one thing off of the last thing and you keep building and growing, right? So that's why we're doing all of this. I just want to make sure you know that we're just not getting here, getting together in here on Sunday mornings and hanging out, having a good time and patting each other on the back and going home and eating lunch. You know, that's, um, that's just not what this is about. <clears throat> in Jeremiah chapter 1, we're backing up now a little bit because I um, strategically wanted to talk about what we talked about the last two weeks before I got to this part. But in chapter 1, there's a couple verses that I want us to look at and consider today. So verses 6 through 8, do we have that? And this is Jeremiah's response to God's call for him to be a prophet to the nations. But I said, hold it, Master God. Look at me. This is the message version. I don't know anything. I'm only a boy. God told me, don't say I'm only a boy. I'll tell you where to go, and you'll go there. I'll tell you what to say, and you'll say it. Don't be afraid of a soul. I'll be right there looking after you. This is God's decree. Okay. So let me start out by telling you this morning that it's perfectly fine to just be a boy. And I'm saying that as an example of whatever you are. If you are a housewife, that's perfectly fine. If you are elderly, that's perfectly fine. If you are a teenager, that's perfectly fine. If you are a middle-aged man, that's perfectly fine. If you have piles of money in the bank, that's perfectly fine, and I need to talk to you after church. <clears throat> if you're as poor as Job's turkey, that's okay. Right? If you are white, if you are black, if you are Hispanic, it's all okay. Because those are not the qualifiers. As a matter of fact, I've got to tell you something you may not have thought of. God usually looks for people who are just plain people in whatever category of life they're in. They're, they're doing life, and they don't seem to possess anything special. As a matter of fact, they might have some issues in their lives that would cause you to think this person could not be effectively used by God in any way. Are you kidding me? I'm looking at a couple of y'all and thinking, yeah. I've got, we've got some examples in the room. Myself included. I'm only a boy. Listen, in this building, this hit me yesterday. I was thinking about this. In this building, in the spring of 1990, that was how long ago? 30, almost 40, uh, 34 years ago. In this building, in the third room on that back hallway, that was my office. I was the youth pastor at this church. And the youth group was doing pretty well. We'd only been here a few months. We're doing pretty well, got some energy going. I'm sitting in there one day, and the pastor walks in, 
I believe it was on a Monday, and he said, Jeff, this coming Sunday, we're, <clears throat> we're going to have a youth service. We do this, we're going to try to do this once a month. So the youth will sing, and they'll take up the offering, and one or two will give a testimony, and I want you to preach. Now, I was a youth pastor, but I was not a preacher. As a matter of fact, I had made a strong commitment against being a preacher. I said, I won't do it. I can sit around in a circle with a bunch of teenagers, and we can eat pizza and sing It Only Takes a Spark and go bowling and play tennis and go on retreats, but I am not preaching. I can sit around and have discussions with them. I can talk to them. I can open up conversations. I can teach lessons, but I'm not a preacher. My dad was a preacher. My brother followed in his footsteps. That's not for me. And that was my answer to the pastor. I said, no, I can't do that. I'm only a boy. I can't do that. And he said, well, I feel pretty strongly that that's what we ought to do. I said, well, I'm not doing it. He turned around and left the office. The next day he walks in the office. He said, listen, about this business of you preaching on Sunday, I really want you to do that. I said, no. I said, I respect you. Not going against your authority, but that's not me. I couldn't do it. I couldn't get up and do that. I'm just not, you know, no. I was a kid growing up that always sat in the back of the classroom behind someone who was large so that the teacher hopefully would not see me and ever call on me to say anything, right? Um, I, I was shy. I would just stammer, turn red. I couldn't talk in public. And I wasn't going to get up because this church at that time had three or 400 people going to it, and I was not going to do that. I told him, no, I'm not doing it. He came back in on Thursday, and he said, Jeff, um, we're going to do the youth thing on Sunday, and you're preaching. And he turned around, walked out, and shut the door behind him. And I sat back in my chair, and I just, you know, pushed the chair back, and I just threw my arms out like this, and I said, I can't do it. I was talking to God. I said, I can't do it. I'm only a boy. I can't do it. And it's like just this thing just hit in my chest and said, I know you can't. That's the whole point. I know you can't. That's who I choose, people who can't. Why else would we need him if we can? Right? Why do we need God if we're capable? Why do we need him to direct if we're intelligent enough? Why do we need his strength if we're strong enough? And so I said, I can't. And he said, I know. He didn't say, well, yes, you can. No, he said, I know you can't. Of course you can't. It's the kind of people I call. And so he preached through me on Sunday, and we've been preaching ever since. And now, I have no trouble getting up in front of people and sharing and talking and preaching and giving away the word. 
As a matter of fact, I can now walk up in front of people without a single note, without a single outline, nothing on paper, put it all aside, and talk to you for an hour just based on what I've been hearing and studying about the Lord for the previous week. But that's Him. So what's your excuse for not doing something, anything, what He's calling you to do in the kingdom? What's your excuse? I don't have enough money. He's not asking you to have enough money. Hey, listen, He's got all the money. Money's not a problem. Listen, I'm telling you, in the kingdom, money is not a problem. Has, ever, has money ever been a problem for you and your family? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in the kingdom, in terms of God's work and God's business, money is not a problem. If God calls you to do a work and you say yes to doing that work, He's going to resource that work. Period. Blessing follows obedience. It's not your money that's at stake here. It's not your money that's at play here. God has the resources. He owns all the money. He's not looking for people with money. He's looking for people who will say yes. And then he begins to resource the plan that he has put in place and the call that he's put on your life. What's your excuse? I'm too old. I'm too young. No. Uh -uh. Do we need to go to the Bible? It's usually a pretty good place to go. Does God ever use old people? Does God ever use really, really young people? Does God give us plenty of examples about how it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are? He, if He chooses you, He will use you according to His plan and He knows all about your limitation. It's not news to Him. He calls you fully aware of who you are and what's going on in your life. What was Moses' excuse? He had a speech impediment. When we start to call the names of the greatest figures in the history of God's people, is Moses almost always near the top with his speech impediment. God didn't even take his speech impediment away. He used him with his speech impediment. What was the excuse that Peter and James and John could have used? Well, we're just working class flunkies. We're just out here doing jobs. We're getting dirty. We smell like fish. We're cleaning boats and nets. We're paying bills. We're raising kids. And? Uh, yeah. I just hear God saying, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's the kind of man I'm looking for right there. A guy who's willing to work, a guy who's willing to get dirty, a guy who's willing to invest, a guy who is living responsibly. Come on, follow. Because listen, it, following him doesn't necessarily mean that you quit your job and you leave your family behind and you sell your home and you move to Africa and you start doing missionary work. If that's what he calls you to do, perfect. But most of the time, that's not what he's calling us to. He's calling us to be 
mechanics and farmers and businessmen and bankers and postal service workers and food service workers and whatever we else we are with all of our limitations to just follow him with our daily lives and our thinking and our actions and our decision making and that we perpetuate the kingdom in the earth with these ordinary lives that we're living and then our life becomes extraordinary God's decree don't worry about your limitations because it's not about you anyway. Don't worry about your limitations. It's not about you. It's about Him. It's about His purpose. So listen, this is a truth we all need to understand. There will always be an enormous gap between what you are capable of and what God calls you to do. It goes back to the point that if you're fully capable, why would you need God? If you can do it on your own, if you can pay for it on your own, then just go do it. That's what you call philanthropy. Big word understood usually only by wealthy people because what it means is that you have the resources to give money away in order to promote good causes. Philanthropy is a good thing. City of Refuge is hugely blessed because of philanthropic efforts and gifts by really, really wealthy people. Fine, no problem. But philanthropy is not kingdom business there's a difference philanthropy means the giver already has the resource he's looking to give some of it away to get a tax credit you know if you're rich you have to give some money away or the government just eats you up i'm not saying that as a voice of experience that's just what i've heard Philanthropy is to give away out of what you have. Kingdom business is when God calls you to do something that you don't have the resources to get done. When God gives you an assignment that you're not capable of completing. That's kingdom business. Remember our discussion about the natural versus the supernatural? In the natural, well, you only do whatever you're able to do. In the supernatural, you accomplish things by the Spirit that you can't do without Him. Can't do it. When, when I threw my arms back in that office 34 years ago, and my, my words were, I can't do it. And that's exactly what he was looking for. Confession of my weakness. Confession of my limitations. Confession that there's an enormous gap between what I'm able to do and what he's calling me to do. I don't have any doubt whatsoever looking back 34 years later that it was supernatural. Supernatural experience that started right there. So what is he calling us to? You will have to determine 
if and what he's calling you to individually. You say, well, God's not saying anything to me. He's not showing me nothing. He's not calling me to anything. Well, there's a 99.999% chance that there's a reason for that. The reason is this. You are not exercising strict obedience to the things he's called us all to do. And why would I say that? Because that's what positions you to hear from him personally and individually. There are things that the Lord has called every follower of his to do. If you live in a pattern of strict obedience to those things, that moves you closer and closer into his heart so that he can trust you with personal and individual stuff that he has just for you. What are some of those things? Well, we can read the Sermon on the Mount and find a lot of them. We don't have time to get into all of it. But he calls us to be humble. He calls us to be meek. He calls us to make peace instead of problems and conflict and war. That's how the Sermon on the Mount starts out. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. What's the evidence that you hunger and thirst after righteousness? Well, the evidence is you're always going after it. You're in the Word. You're in meditation. You're in prayer. You're in worship. You're in service. He calls us to forgive people who do wrong to us. How many Christians are cheating themselves out of the nearness of God, the personal and individual encounters with God that could be available to them because they choose to keep a little bit of that unforgiveness in here. Everything you choose to keep that's contrary to what He's commanded us prevents something awesome and supernatural that he wants to put in here because there's no space for it. The space is occupied by unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, anger. That stuff has to be pushed out to make room for what the Father has. And I... And Beyond that, those, those things that we read in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and 7, He's called us all to a certain extent to be prophets. Prophets. Maybe not like Jeremiah. Maybe not like Isaiah or Ezekiel or Daniel. Maybe they'll never write a book of what our prophecies were all about. Maybe we'll never be a household name like they are. But let me read you Peterson's description of a prophet from the book, Run With the Horses, and then see if you agree that you and I are called to be prophets in this world. A prophet lets people know who God is and what he is like, what he says, and what he is doing. Do you have any sense of responsibility in the world you live in today? To let the world know who God is and what He's saying and what He's doing 
Let's have a moment of self-evaluation. You know we love to do that. Does one week ever pass in your life where if you sat down on Sunday night after that week just passed and just evaluated the previous seven days, do you think that weeks ever pass where you would have to honestly say, I don't think I did or said anything this week that let people know who God is or what he's doing or saying in the earth. What? There's no way to know, but what percentage, wonder, what percentage of Christian people live in a way that never or rarely lets people know who God is or what he's doing or saying? How many encounters, how many meetings, how many conversations do we have that we walk away from and nobody who was there with us would ever guess that we were a follower of Christ? Not that we were profane necessarily or vulgar or lied or whatever, just that we never indicate in any way that we're a follower of Christ. All of us have a responsibility to let people know who God is, what He's like, what He's saying, what He's doing. A prophet wakes us up from our sleep complacency, sleepy complacency, so that we see the great and stunning drama that is our existence and then pushes us onto the stage playing our parts whether we think we are ready or not. A prophet angers us by rejecting our euphemisms and ripping off our disguises. Oh, one of my favorite parts of being a prophet. Then dragging our heartless attitudes and selfish motives out into the open where everyone sees them for what they are. A prophet makes everything and everyone seem significant and important. Important because God made it or him or her significant because God is actively right now using it or him or her. A prophet makes it difficult to continue with a sloppy or selfish life. The people on your right and on your left, the people in your household, the other people who attend this church, you should be challenging them, not, not verbally attacking, but through your actions, through your attitudes, through your, what they see as your priorities and your motivations. You should be challenging them concerning living a sloppy and selfish life. You should be the model, the example to people around you all the time that sloppiness and selfishness is not the heart of the Father for His people and that He's calling us to a greater plane of living in His presence and perpetuating His kingdom in the earth. All of us have some prophet responsibilities. And then to finish up verse 18 of chapter 1, God equips this man who is inadequate, who is incapable, who's just a boy, like he says. And God says to him, listen to this, stand at attention while I prepare you for your work. I'm making you as impregnable as a castle. 
immovable as a steel post, solid as a concrete block wall. You are a one-man defense system against this culture, against Judah's kings and princes, against the priests and local leaders. They'll fight you, but they won't even scratch you. I'll back you up every inch of the way. That's God's decree. That's God's empowerment. That's God's blessing. That's God's resourcing. You don't have what it takes, but I do, he says to all of us. I will equip you. I will weaponize you. I will empower you. And then what happens? You become a defense system against this culture. If you recall, if you were here, the first Sunday we talked from Jeremiah, I brought up that the reason we're doing this is because of the culture we're living in. Because of the problems we see and because they are so similar to the culture that Jeremiah was living in. Not much has changed in all this time. 2,600 years. Not much has changed. I'm going to make you a one-man defense system against the culture. To what degree? I'm asking you a question. You answer it in your own head. To what degree would you consider yourself to be a defense system against this culture? Now that probably will require a lot of thought before you can give an answer. I don't like to harp on certain things, but I'm going to harp on one. A couple years ago, I think the Super Bowl halftime show was Beyonce, okay? Now, when I hear that, what does that mean for me? It means I'm going to wa watch the first half of the Super Bowl, and then as soon as it's halftime, I'm going to change channels, and I'm going to go get something to eat. I'm going to go to the bathroom, and for the entire halftime, my TV is going to be on something different. And then when the second half starts, I'm going to put it back on the game and I'm going to watch the game. That's my MO. Not trying to big myself up, but that, that's what I would do. That's what I did. I saw Christian people post on social media how great the entertainment at halftime was because they didn't change the channel. They sat there and watched it. Not only did they watch it, they were entertained by it. Not only were they entertained by it, they bragged about it. They, they said it was awesome. They said it was good. To the point that I said, well, my Lord, Beyonce must have done something different than I've known her to do. So I went and watched as much of it as I could stomach. And about the third time I saw her bare behind right in the camera doing all sorts of weird things, I had to change it again. Y'all want to just be straight, fair, and honest with each other and stop playing games? 
You can't be a representative of God in the earth. You cannot be a defense system against, opposed to this culture and absorb obscene, godless, profane, vulgar material at the same time. It just don't work like that. You can't be for and against at the same time. Some of these people were not only believers, but people in ministry, leaders, pastors, preachers, and their spouses. Just thought I'd tell the truth for a minute. So, well, I've been telling the truth the whole time. Against this culture, the culture the evil we see around us. We can't watch. We record every episode of Andy Griffith's show because that's some good TV right there. If you don't believe that, you're a blasphemer. <coughs> but you know what? You record the Andy Griffith show off of TV land. You know what you have to put up with? The commercials about RuPaul's drag show on MTV. And this is all by design, by the way. That the good, wholesome stuff now has been polluted, invaded by evil. When Sully was 11 years old, never forget it. I remember exactly how old he was. He was 11. We're sitting in the living room watching the Andrew Griffith show on TV land, goes to commercial, and the commercial is for the movie Striptease. And my 11-year-old son is sitting in the living room floor watching a half-dressed, no, not half, barely, you know, one of those floss and two band-aid pole dancing. Made me so mad. I got the phone. I called New York City to TV Land headquarters. Dug around till I got a programming director on the phone and let them have it with both barrels. Did a lot of good. Now we got RuPaul's Drag Show on there. Against the culture. I got to finish. I done got on a soapbox. My head got hot. Not only against the culture, but this is part of the culture. Judah's kings and princes. Listen, don't get all call up, caught up in the politics. And the, uh, I, I think we have a responsibility to vote. I think we have a right to our opinions about good and bad in terms of our government. <coughs> but don't expect government to save you. And don't be afraid to say, well, government or no government, that's ridiculous and it's bad for people. You know, we got a, a, a presidential election coming up in a few months, and it's going to get really, really, <laughs> I mean, the ridiculousness we're going to see and hear about and experience is going to be something like we've never seen before, I'm afraid. But we have a responsibility as kingdom sons and daughters to be defense systems against things that are wrong, including godless government. And here's the one that really hits home with some of us. We are to be a defense system against bad priests and local leaders. 
See, it comes even into the church. If it is not kingdom, if it is not of God, if it is not by the Spirit, if it is not Bible-based, then it is wrong. And we have to be against that boldly, unequivocally, unashamedly. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the real, true, out of the mouth of Jesus' gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God that leads to salvation. It's the only thing that leads to salvation. And it's a militaristic mindset that says, I'm not ashamed of this because it's right, and I am absolutely against that because it's wrong, even if it's in the context of church. If it's wrong, it's wrong because the enemy is masterful at using what appears to be right to work his destructive agenda. Defense systems. So God gives Jeremiah two visions. Two visions. These are important for you and me as well. The first vision is, is of a, a limb off of an almond tree. And he asked Jeremiah, he says, well, what did you see in the vision? He said, I saw a walking stick. And God said, good, perfect. Now you're getting it. Now you're growing up from being just a boy to being the man I'm calling you to be because you see now that you're going to need that walking stick that I'm providing to you for stability. You're going to need that staff. That staff represents authority. It represents leadership. It represents that you are a mouthpiece for God Almighty. You're getting it. And then the almond tree, symbolic of first fruits, in Palestine, you had a lot of almond trees and they were some of the first ones to bloom in the springtime. And before the leaves came, you had these beautiful white blossoms that covered the almond trees. It was just, it was just gorgeous part of the landscape and that part of the world. And so the blossoms come and then the blossoms go away and then the, leaves, the, the trees are covered with beautiful green leaves. This is all about process. You're going to need that staff, that almond rod to walk through the process that I'm calling you to. And what comes at the end? The fruit. The abundance of harvest because the proper process has happened. And then the second vision he sees as a boiling pot. And God says, what do you see? And he says, well, I see, a, I see a pot and it's boiling and it's being tipped over. It's coming from the north and it's pointing down toward the south where we are. And God says, yes, the threat is there. The threat has to be dealt with. It was literal for them. It was literal because the northern kingdom of Israel had already been destroyed. The enemies were gathering there to invade the southern kingdom of Judah. The boiling pot was tipping toward the remnant. 
So listen, the threat is there, but the picture, the picture is not of a tidal wave that stretches across the breadth of the nation, and it's inevitable that it's going to completely cover and destroy God's people forever and wipe them off the face of the earth. That's not the picture. What's the picture? One pot. Is it a threat? Yes. But it's contained. It's limited. It can only do so much damage. And nothing or nobody will ever completely destroy God's people and God's plan. Your commitment needs to be that you are going to be part of the remnant no matter what comes your way. No matter what enemy shows up. No matter what boiling pot is tipped toward you. They cannot completely destroy God's plan or God's people. And I love this quote from the book, Run With the Horses. He says, evil becomes fuel in the furnace of salvation. So when you know about evil, when you see evil, when you hear about it, even when it comes very close to home, it is a threat. But if you depend on this God who has called you and equipped you and empowered you and weaponized you, that evil is only going to serve to become fuel in the furnace of your salvation. And you're going to realize that salvation. You're going to walk in it. And it's going to be eternal. So Jeremiah was shaped and prepared by the words and the visions. And he submitted to it. And that's why we talk about him today. That's why he's our example for now. Because he knew his limitations. He expressed those. But then when God responded with the supernatural response to Jeremiah's natural answer, then the Word of God went forth with power and the truth was realized and God's people are still around today. And y'all are some of them. We have an opportunity to be against and for, to be against evil, to be against the counterculture, to be against things that are godless. And we have a chance to be for perpetuation of the kingdom, the truth, and that we reflect His image in the earth. Father, thank You that You've called us. It's, it's just unbelievable in a way when you first think about it that us with all of our limitations us with without huge resources but we do have a call and we're saying yes to it thank you for choosing us I thank you for the supernatural things we've already seen done and we pray that that would continue as we continue to say yes and to be obedient. We give up our excuses and we choose God's decree. Don't worry about your limitations. It's not about you anyway. I pray your blessings of peace, power, provision, protection, your blessings of courage 
commitment would go with every one of us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.